you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we are coming uh, to the end of our study. Brother David Creech did a fantastic job. Uh, he, got, he, got all, he got most of the work done. He got us through chapter 10 and then uh, came out of the bullpen to get the last couple of chapters done together. And, and I've enjoyed that opportunity. Uh, I'd encourage you, if you have any comments, if you have any questions, please raise your hand. Uh, Michael's back there with the microphone. Uh, we, we would all benefit from your thoughts as we come together. And, and this is a little bit of a shorter chapter. Um, so knock on wood, we shouldn't, have it, we shouldn't have too much trouble getting through that. And we would definitely benefit from your thoughts and your comments as we study God's word together. Uh, by way of just a, a brief recap, think about the, the context of the situation that we're in. If you recall back to 1 Corinthians, there were a lot of issues that needed to be addressed. Paul had spent a significant amount of time with this church in Corinth, about a year and a half. And this report has come to him that there is this factious spirit, that pride is leading them into all sorts of different sins, not only sexual immorality, but sins against one another, uh, that they're not united together. And so he writes a, a pretty stern letter in 1 Corinthians. And after this letter has been delivered, Paul mentions that he has no rest in his soul. He wants to know how it's being received. How have the brethren taken these admonitions? How have the brethren taken these rebukes? And so he sends Titus to go to them and to bring word back to them. And so 2 Corinthians is now being written after Titus has come back to Paul. And he's relayed some good news. The majority of these brethren have repented of their sins. They've fixed some of the issues that were plaguing the congregation. But there's still an unrepentant minority. And as is so often with minorities, they may, may even be a loud minority. And as we've been studying for the past couple of, uh, past couple of weeks, uh, chapters, chapters 11 and 12 especially, Paul is defending his apostleship again. And again, we mentioned this is not out of pride, but this is out of a desire that they hold fast to the truth. And he says, I don't want these individuals that he calls false apostles, individuals that are mere peddlers of the truth, salesmen of the truth, twisting it to their own desires to make themselves look better. He said, I don't want these individuals to lead you astray. So Paul defended his authority as an apostle, and by extension, he defended the gospel itself. Uh, so if you recall last week, Paul concluded his, his quote-unquote foolish boasting. There's a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek to some of these things. He said, listen, if these, these individuals are out there, they're boasting, well, I'll go along. I'll, I'll boast too. But he boasted in a very different manner. You notice what he boasted in was not the great accomplishments that he had made. He didn't lay out all the different churches that he had helped to found. He didn't lay out all the individuals that he had baptized. He laid out his weaknesses. He laid out the times that he had been persecuted for the gospel of Christ. And he went on to say that when he was at his weakest, that is when the power of Christ was displayed in him. And that was something that he would boast of. And so he said in chapter 12 and in verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that strength does not come from within himself, he mentions in verse 9. The power of Christ rests upon me. And so that, that's, that's a, just, a, just a sharp contrast between these individuals, these false apostles, 
And Paul draws that contrast. So he's brought that to a close. And he really transitions, if you recall, the, the latter end of chapter 12. He now kind of goes full in on this stern warning. And he's basically letting them know sin is not going to be tolerated. I'm coming to you. Now, now we've already talked about this. He, he avoided uh, at least one trip because he didn't want to come to them in sorrow. He didn't really know how his, his rebukes and his admonitions had been taken. So he didn't want to come to them. And now he is going to come to them. Now that he knows that his letter has been received, there are those that have repented. We talked about that in chapter 7. But he said, listen, I'm glad that so many of you have repented. But that's not enough. We need everybody. And so he's finishing with this stern warning. And that really continues on into chapter 13. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Sin is not going to be tolerated. And when Paul comes, he's going to address it. And he even tells them, I'm afraid that you're not going to like how I'm going to address it. So that, that brings us to chapter 13. Any, any comments? I know we, we wrapped up kind of right at the bell last time. Was there any final thoughts on chapter 12 that anybody wanted to make before we got into chapter 13 today? I don't, I don't see any. So let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and we talked about this a little bit, uh, but chapter 13 and verse 1, he says, This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Uh, we, we mentioned this in, in our study last week. How many times had Paul actually been to them? Uh, a, little bit of a, a little bit of a question there. We know that he was definitely there for 18 months. And then there are some individuals that as they read the beginning of 2 Corinthians... Uh, when Paul says there in chapter 2 and verse 1, I didn't want to come to you again in sorrow, they say, well, he must, he must have gone a second time. And now he didn't want to come again um, in sorrow, and now he's ready to make that third trip. Uh, that's, that's certainly a possibility. Um, I, I probably tend to lean a little bit more towards the fact that he did not take that second trip. Um, if, you, if you think about what some of these individuals were accusing him of, it seems like they took him skipping that trip as an opportunity. Uh, as an opportunity to maybe cast some dispersions on his true motives and his true intentions. The way that Paul talks about, uh, you know, not having any rest in his soul until he knew how his letter had been received or how they had, they had changed doesn't make as much sense to me if he had visited them again after, after that first letter. So uh, I think, I think either, either way, either way uh, I'm not, I don't think it really changes the whole dynamic um, but I, I probably tend to think that he, when he's talking about coming to you a third time, being ready to come to you a third time, that he was ready to come to them that second time. And then as he mentions in, the, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he didn't take that trip. Uh, that now he is ready to come to them the third time. Um, and now he's actually going to go. What I think is probably more impactful than the actual number of times that he was ready to go to them was what he is asking them to do. Uh, you, you notice the, the quote there from Deuteronomy in chapter 1. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Uh, again, it seems like there are some individuals that have sought opportunity to thrive in Paul's absence. And now he says, listen, no more, I'm coming. I'm going to be there. And all of these deeds are going to be brought to light. Uh, the whole point behind the, this, this quote from, from Deuteronomy there, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, is that we, we're, we're kind of getting rid of hearsay. There's no more hearsay. There's no more he said, she said. 
we have two or three individuals that are witnesses to behavior, and a conviction can occur upon the mouth of two or three witnesses. And this is a warning to those that are still in sin. That Listen, a conviction can occur when we have evidence to bring your deeds to light. And I think that's what he's getting at there. And he tells them, listen, I've told you before, and I'm going to say it again. You know, and there's no difference between me being absent and me being there. He says, when I come, I will not spare. We are going to address head on the issues that you are facing. And, and I just appreciate that mindset so much. There's no tolerance for sin. It's easy Uh, I can imagine at least it would be easy for Paul, especially if he was so worried about how they were going to respond to his stern rebukes in the first letter to say, oh, that's just, that's that's wonderful that so many people have repented. That's fantastic. And he does say that, but he doesn't stop there. He wants all of them to repent. He wants everyone to be faithful. Uh, It it made me think about uh, that, that song, the 99. And even if one has gone astray, Our Lord is not going to rest until he goes out and he finds that one that has gone astray and brings it back to the fold. There's rejoicing over 99 faithful ones, but even more so rejoicing and effort after the one that has gone astray. And that's what I see here from Paul is that, yes, that's fantastic that so many have repented and have changed their ways, but we're not satisfied. We're not content. We're not going to hang back and say, oh, man, that's great. 70%, 75%. That's awesome. Yeah, we're passing. No. Paul wants 100%. He wants everyone, everyone to come to, to the full knowledge of Christ and to come back in repentance. And, and he continues on in this vein when he goes to, to uh, verse 3. I think he kind of harkens back to one of their charges against him. And they said, listen, when he's, when he's here, he's meek and he's humble and he's quiet. He's really weak. But when he writes these letters, he's super stern. He's strong. You know, he, he's not consistent. Paul says, listen, I'm going I'm to be consistent. He said, if you, if you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak but mighty, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Uh, again, he's, he's going back and he's reemphasizing this idea that when I come, I'm going to have to address some of these things, and it's not going to be in a weak manner. And he uses Christ as an example, the perfect example. He said, listen, if you you want to see my authority, he said, I'm going to act just as Christ did. Christ was not weak. Christ was mighty. Christ was was humble. But yet, he exhibited power. And he mentions in verse 4, though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. We talked a little bit about that last week. uh, Maybe maybe the parallel when you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about how God chose the weak things of this world, the foolish things of this world, to put to shame that which is high and mighty and strong. The things that man considers prestigious and strong and mighty, God casts those down. And he casts those down by things that we might assume would be, would be weak or foolish. You, know, you just think about how, how in the world could somebody dying on the cross be the ultimate symbol of victory. But yet God found a way through his wisdom to take a humble act of sacrifice like that and make it the strongest, mightiest moment of victory that this world has ever known. And Paul uses that as an example and a reminder to them that even though Christ was crucified in weakness, he lives by the power of God. 
And he said, you may think that I am, I am weak, but listen. He said, I, I'm, I'm coming to you with that same power and that same authority that has been given to me by Christ. And again, I'm going to exercise that authority not to hold dominion over you, but for your edification, to build you up. Then he comes to, to verse 5. In verse 5, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. But he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. You know, just uh, a lot that we can, we can make application of. But I think the first thing, just in the context here, is he's asking them to examine themselves in light of. And again, he's writing toward, he's writing specifically to the, the congregation here and thinking about those individuals that have repented. The majority here that have repented. And I think he's asking them, saying, listen, you know, you know my conduct towards you, and now you know yourselves. Take a look at yourselves and see, he said, are you in the faith? And it's a rhetorical question. Test yourselves. Do you know that Christ is in you? And the answer should be yes, of course. Christ is in us. We're faithful. That's who we worship. And I think the implication then is, as he has mentioned previously in chapter 6, if Christ is in you and you are faithful, don't be swayed by these false apostles. Don't be swayed by these individuals that may try to bring another gospel to you. Don't be swayed and led away by these individuals that may try to pull you away from Christ in you. And, and that self-examination is so important. Uh, just, just a couple of things that I wanted to bring out here, and we'll talk some more about that. But I, I, see, I see love in these multiple warnings by Paul. You can tell. I mean, he is going above and beyond to lay the groundwork for this visit. He does not want to come to them, as he has said many times. He does not want to come to them and have it be a, a contentious visit. He doesn't want to come to them in strife with more sharp rebukes. He wants it to be a joyous occasion to reunite with brethren that he loves deeply. And so to avoid that, he wants, he wants to just give them warning after warning after warning before he actually comes. And, and I go back to his, I guess his writing when he describes himself as a father to his children. And I think about some of the things as, as a pretty young parent that I regret the most are when I was not patient with my child. When, when my child was doing something that was just, oh, I mean, they're just, they're just getting under your skin, and then you snap, and you get onto them for something. You know, and, then, and in hindsight, you think, I should have warned them a little more. I should have given them another warning. Now, some, that's, there's always a time for discipline, and there's a time for action. And after you've given warning... You need to follow up on that warning. But there have definitely been some times where I've fallen short as a parent where I know I didn't give appropriate warning. I didn't give instruction to my child. They were getting on my nerves, and then I snapped. And I did something I shouldn't have. Maybe, maybe, maybe I raised my voice at them, or maybe I popped them, and I should have given him a little bit more warning. And, and I, see, I see love and patience here in Paul's writing to them that he wants to give them as much warning as he possibly can to lay this groundwork before he actually has to come. And he says, listen, when I come, if I need to come with a rod, I'm going to come with a rod. So be it. But that's not how I want it to be. And, of course, that's something that we try to relate to our children, that the discipline is for your good, but we don't enjoy the discipline. 
We would much rather just, we would much rather just have a, a, a relationship that didn't require that kind of discipline. But it is necessary. So I think there, there's love there. And I don't, I don't think we need, to, we need to lose that. That these warnings time after time after time, that is him displaying his love and his patience with them. But again, I go back to this idea that we cannot abide with sinful members or practices in the church. And I, and I prepared ahead today. I actually brought, brought the water out so that I can save Josh uh, a couple of minutes of getting it for me. But again, you, you go back to some of the warnings that, that Paul gave them in 1 Corinthians. I, I thought specifically about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, you can go back over there and, and look at that real quick. But if you remember, this was the brother that was in immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Um, if you think about, uh, and then even, I think I mentioned this a minute ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, those verses there, verses 14 through 18, where he talks about, you know, come out and be separate. Don't, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's wonderful that they have exercised discipline on this brother that was in sexual immorality. It's wonderful that a majority of them have repented of some of the things that they were struggling with, this factious spirit, this pride that had permeated them. But they still have a little bit more to go. There is still this small minority that needs to be addressed. And I see Paul here encouraging them to do so. And that's a wonderful lesson for us. We cannot grow complacent. It's wonderful to focus on the good things that we have. And as a church here at Northfield, we have been just, just absolutely blessed beyond measure. But we can't let our guard down. We can't grow complacent when we think about all the good things that are going on, all the individuals that, that are teaching, that are serving, that are encouraging. That, that, that's absolutely wonderful, and we need to hold them up. But we also have to be on guard. And I think that's why this examination, this call to examination, is so important. You could also make application to ourselves. We need to be constantly examining and testing. Uh, I, I was reminded again in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he tells them there, take heed. 10 verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Sometimes that's when Satan finds the perfect opportunity, is when everything is going right, when you're feeling pretty good about the progress that you've made. That's when he looks for opportunity to strike. When you let your guard down just a little bit, constant examination and testing. You think about that idea of testing. Really, I think the whole point behind a test is to look for weaknesses, right? You think about some verses, First uh, Peter, Peter came to mind. Those verses where it talks about being tested and tried in fire. If you've got this, this, piece, of, this piece of metal and you're looking for in, uh, imperfections, if you're looking for impurities, you're putting it in the fire, trying to harden it, trying to harden it and make it even, even stronger. I think that's the idea that we should take from testing. You know, we don't, we don't really like tests. I, I, don't, I don't think I've met anybody that says, oh, yes, I love tests. Multiple choice, oh, even better. Give, give me more questions. We don't, we don't enjoy taking tests. And I think one of the reasons is because it does reveal our weaknesses. It's very rare that we take a test and we get 100. Most of the time, even if we pass the test, it's going to be that little reminder, hey, you don't know everything. <laughs> you know, you missed five, you missed ten, you missed a lot more. Certainly had my share of those. 
we, we, don't like, we don't like bringing those weaknesses to light. It's a little bit easier to think, hey, everything's good. I, I, I know this subject inside and out. I feel pretty comfortable about it. And then all of a sudden you get down in front of that test. And you're like, oh, okay, I guess I didn't. That's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling to have our weaknesses revealed to us, to have our shortcomings revealed to us. But when it comes to spiritual matters, it's, it's just absolutely crucial. First of all, we can't get better. We can't get better until we know where we are. So even if we are doing well, testing and examination is so important. It's so important to give us that benchmark. You know, if somebody were to come to you and say, are you a better Christian today than you were last year? How would you know? Well, how would you answer? I would hope that you would say yes. But what evidence do you have of that? Yeah, I'm probably getting better. Well, how? How are you getting better? Are you a better Christian today than you were three years ago? Or five years ago? If you're not examining yourself on a regular basis, if you're not testing yourself, what evidence, that you, what evidence do you have that you're getting better? And that's, that's a tough question because the reality is we might look in the mirror and we might ask ourselves that question. We might say, on March 28th of 2020, I might be the same. I might be the same as I was a year ago. Even worse, I may not be as strong as I was March 28th of 2020. I may not be as strong as I was March 28th, 2018. But we have to ask those questions. Because if we don't ask those questions, if you don't take the test, that doesn't mean that the weakness has gone away. That doesn't mean that we still don't know those answers. The weakness is still there. If you don't take that metal and stick it in the fire, the, imp the imperfection is still in it. If you haven't examined it and you haven't tested it, it doesn't change the underlying reality. And that's why I think this verse has so much application to us today. Is that we, we inherently do not like finding out our flaws and our weaknesses. And, and, I, and I'm not saying that you should just get up in the mirror, get up every morning and look in the mirror and just berate yourself for all the things you're not doing. But I am saying that regular examination, regular testing, finding out where we are coming up short, what we can get better on, that's so crucial to becoming a better Christian each and every day so that we can confidently say, you know what, yes, I, I am doing better today than I was last year. I am doing better today than I was in 2018. And I know I am because of, because of this. I'll take a break right there. Any, any thoughts or any comments on those first couple of verses? Uh, yes, sir, Roger. Uh, Michael's going to bring you the microphone. Brian, uh, <clears throat> this, this idea is not just for the Corinthians here, as you very well stated. It applies to us here today. If you're one of those witnesses, that's a hard thing for you to do. But you've got to be a witness. Mm -hmm. Because if you let that person go on in sin, it, it's going to cost him his soul if he doesn't repent and change. And if you don't acknowledge it to the auditorium or the, the brotherhood of what's going on, and you, the elders has to be courageous enough to discipline whatever type of discipline that's needed and we have to back those and none of that is easy yeah, if you point. allow that to go on and fester and fester it can actually split a church mm -hmm. if you're trying to protect somebody's family whatever but 
we as individuals have to apply that to ourselves and also to our brethren that we love as ourselves. Yeah, that's a good point. And if you apply it to yourself, uh, Michael, come back. Mitch has got a comment. Um, and I think you're right. If you apply it to yourself first, it's, it's easier than to be one of those witnesses. If you, if you are known as somebody who has that kind of humility, then it's a little bit easier to, you know, once you've been working on chipping away at that moat, then you can start going after some specs. Mitch? A uh, couple comments about the testing. One, uh, I think this idea of testing is uh, one reason why it's important for us to study the Bible in forums such as this, where we can have comments and we can uh, call out, you know, when we see things that maybe aren't truth, that maybe were misspoken, uh, where we have questions, and we can test each other and we can test ourselves uh, in this setting. I think that's why you see us studying the Bible like this uh, so often. Um, but also, this is uh, a way for Paul to uh, find, you know, make his final plea for them to address these false apostles and prophets that are in, the, in, you know, in their midst by saying that you know, the one who has the truth is not afraid of the examination. Yeah. It's the one who is approaching everything with this deception and this falsehood that would be afraid of that. That's a good point. Yeah. And Carrie? testing and the potential of failing the test and you reference 1 Corinthians 5 that would prove the fallacy of once saved always saved mm -hmm. and you know that deceptiveness of that false doctrine yeah I think that's a good point that is a good point it's a great comments yeah John Dan do you have your hand up Michael's getting the steps. Anytime there's a test or an examination, there has to be a standard by which you're measured. Back in chapter 10 and verse 12, talked about those that compared themselves with themselves. They were mm -hmm. using the wrong standard. Yeah. Now, Paul, of course, had preached the truth to them. He had written letters with the authority of an apostle before. And there were some of those who had the gift of prophecy. So they knew the truth. <coughs> God's truth and they knew the right standard to use to examine themselves. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think he, he brings that out while, while Michael's going over to Dan. Um, he, he brings that out too in, in these next couple of verses. We'll, we'll look at that verses, verses 7 through 10. I think Paul kind of highlights the difference between these individuals that had, you know, basically twisted the truth to make themselves look a certain way. And Paul who says, listen, my only allegiance is to the truth. And even if that were to show me to be disqualified, I would rather that you be approved and me be disqualified. Dan? I just wanted to say on behalf of those who may have a version that reads this way, may be a little confused about the doubts about the second visit, and I'm not going to argue the point or try to be tedious about it, but ASB and the NASB and the ESB, I think, saying so many words in verse 2, when I was present on my second visit, the New King James and the King James sound they put an if in there and that's part of why it's a little uncertain because some of the versions read differently and so some of those maybe are uh, a little confused by the discussion so I'm sorry to bring that up again but I also just wanted to say that the reference in Deuteronomy I view as sort of a figurative parallel not necessarily of trying to establish who's a sinner in Corinth and who isn't 
but that Paul is using two or three visits of his own to establish the confirmation of his apostleship mm -hmm. and his authority. And he's not putting down the challenge to this apostleship the way that a carnal ruler would put down a challenge to his authority, like the way that uh, Saul would try to go after those that challenged him. Uh, instead, he's, he's concerned about a use of force. He's trying not to overdo it. Mm -hmm. Instead, he's trying not to appeal to these carnal methods that he's mentioned so many times in the letter, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but, right. but they're by casting down arguments. And this is the way he's, he's handled and conducted himself the whole time. But then there is a time for a use of force, but he's reluctant to use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, too, that you know, he, he has described the boasting as, as you know, unprofitable. And so to come to them in person and just get wrapped up in that same thing all over again is certainly not, certainly not his desire. All right, well, let's go ahead and let's, let's move on to verses 7 through 10. Um, and, and, I, and I just previewed this a second ago, but I do think it, again, it, it highlights the difference. Uh, it highlights the difference between Paul's attitude. And, and, and I, the way that I read this, it's, I, I get the, the idea that he is saying, listen, don't get the impression that I'm looking forward to, as Dan just mentioned. I'm not looking forward to this opportunity to discipline you. And he says it's quite the opposite. Uh, verse 8, we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. Verse 9, we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. And so as I, as I see this, this collection of verses, uh, Paul is saying, listen, even if your faithfulness, even if you are so faithful that it showed all of my concerns to be baseless, that's fantastic. He said, listen, I don't, I don't want to come to you to use these sharp words, to use these, these carnal arguments just so that I can be found to be stronger than you are. That's the last thing that I want. I would much rather be shown to be weak. Uh, he, he uses the word in the New King James there in verse 7, that we may seem disqualified. His allegiance is to the truth, and he wants to follow the truth wherever it goes. Um, I mentioned earlier, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 4 and 13, he talked about these false apostles who had twisted the truth to make themselves appear different. And Paul says, listen, I only want to follow the truth regardless of how that makes me appear. Uh, I saw some parallel when you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. A similar, maybe, maybe a similar section there where Paul is... Uh, somewhat defending himself. Uh, start with me there in, in chapter 2 and in verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor is it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is a witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Then it goes on to verse 7, but we were gentle among you. I think Paul, and, and that, that passage, I think, brings out and summarizes so well the similar message he was trying to convey to the Corinthians. That he did not come to them as this, as this apostle who wanted to exercise his authority and make all these demands of them. He wanted to come to them in love and in brotherly affection. 
and he preferred that gentleness. Any, any thoughts there before we go on to the last, the last section? All right, well, let's, uh, let's wrap up. We, our time is actually, as it always does, moves, moves a lot faster than you think. Uh, there's, there's a great deal in these last couple of verses, uh, verses 11 through verse 14. And really, when I look at the last couple of verses of, of an epistle, in some ways, I feel like it almost kind of gives you a clue as to what were the major themes. If, you, if you're writing a paper and you think about the introduction, the body, and the conclusion, in the introduction, you're telling them what you're going to say. You are kind of giving a preview of the big picture ideas that you really want to hit on. You flesh them out in the body, but then in the, in the conclusion, you come back to them again, and you remind them, here's a final takeaway. So let's just look at some of the things that he mentions here in these last couple of verses. <clears throat> Verse 11, it says, finally, brethren, farewell, become complete. And that, that phrase, be complete, uh, it literally means to restore to its former condition. Uh, how fitting for a congregation that in 1 Corinthians was called to repentance, that had suffered from this factious, prideful spirit, that had been led astray into uh, different sinful endeavors. And now Paul is reminding them again at, at the very end. So again, I think I mentioned this last time, there's almost this bookend from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and, and maybe, maybe verse 10, where he talks about, I hear that there is this factious spirit among you. Now, closing out, 2 Corinthians, become complete. Uh, you know, literally restore to your former condition. Uh, I just find it fitting for a congregation where many had repented and there's still that minority that needs to come to repentance. Uh, be of good comfort. Uh, also, in, in some versions, translated comfort one another. I think back to chapter 2, uh, where he's talking to them about how they had uh, followed out his admonition, and they had disciplined that erring brother, but the discipline had been complete. And now they needed to bring that erring brother back in and show him love and support again. I also thought about chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Uh, we don't have a lot of information about the, the trials that they had been going through, but Paul encouraged them to treat those trials and sufferings as light momentary afflictions to push through whatever they were dealing with because beyond that, beyond that was something that was far greater and it was worth going through whatever it was. So whatever, whatever they were going through, whatever kind of persecution it may have been, you can see how valuable it would be to comfort one another. Be of one mind and live in peace. I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. A, a factious, prideful spirit is at the root of uh, of so many sinful endeavors. Uh, pride is just, just so pernicious in the way that it works upon us. And you can see here in this, this, this admonition, be of one mind, live in peace. And if you do so, if you as a church are one mind and live in peace, the God of love and peace will be with you. What a, what a wonderful promise there. But what a, what, a, what a strong admonition to think about that idea of coming together of unifying together. Again, we've talked about the, the, these, these two almost warring, uh, warring factions. They had this problem when they were all in sin in 1 Corinthians, when you had folks that, were, that had kind of split off, they were taking the, the Lord's Supper ahead of others. Uh, but now that you've had some that have repented, the problem's still there because you have that, that warring between 
those that have repented and those that haven't. And then you think about going on to this next section. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, it, it's interesting to me how many times this is, this is mentioned. Yeah, this is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. It was written to the Romans. Uh, it's here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, it's, in, it's written in uh, the epistle to Thessalonica. And then Peter, so not even Paul. Uh, Peter also includes it in his first epistle. Um, and, and it's easy to kind of go over that and think, okay, that's just a, that's a local custom, uh, which it, it probably was. You think about that time, even something that's still present in many cultures today, to have individuals that, that would greet one another with a kiss. Uh, that's, that's not our culture. Um, I'm not anxious to, to import that into our culture. Uh, but I, I can see within this context you think about this, this idea of an embrace. Um, it, it's, hard, it's hard to look super manly kissing another man. <laughs> you know, you think about the humility and just kind of just stripping away, stripping away all pride, stripping away this idea of being above someone else. When you embrace somebody for a kiss, you know, you are showing, you are showing brotherly affection. Um, and, and I will say, I've listened to a lot of things in, in this uh, this COVID era, you know, maybe semi-post-COVID era, where people are talking about, oh, you know, things I'm not going to miss. I'm, I'm not going to miss shaking hands. I'm not going to miss hugging. I, I, think, I think there's something there. You know, there, there is something to having a, a, a form of an embrace. And obviously, we make accommodations for a period of time. Uh, we, we make accommodations so that we can, we can be healthy and we can be smart. But I think there, I think there is some wisdom behind individuals that love each other sharing a form of an embrace being able to show somebody else and of course there are lots of ways to show affection but there is something about being able to to give somebody a handshake to give somebody a hug to give somebody an embrace that shows them in in a way that sometimes words cannot Um, have you ever have ever been in a situation uh, i think about funerals you ever been in a situation where you just didn't have the words happens to me quite often. You don't know what to say. Some, somebody is grieving, and you just you don't have the words. You don't know what to say. An embrace can say a lot. And, and, I, and I see that. I see the wisdom in this admonition here. For a church that is struggling to come together and to unify, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying, I mean, if you go full Corleone and you come try to Fredo kiss me, then I'm probably not going to do too well with that. So I'm not, I'm not calling for that here. But I do think there is some wisdom in, 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 in a warm embrace, in a physical expression of the brotherly affection that we should have as saints. Uh, we, we have a bond unlike any other. We, we have a bond unlike any other in the world. And, and I think that there is some wisdom there in showing one another just how much we care and just how much we love. Uh, finally, our time is almost up, but this last, this last verse is, is maybe the best. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion, some versions say fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. How, how beautiful. How beautiful to think about the harmonious working of the Godhead. And what a wonderful example to them. Again, I, I see throughout all of these closing verses this call to unity, this call to come together, what better example to look to than the harmony that is found present in the Godhead? 
And I can't even begin to explain it, but you see there the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, calling them to partake in that same fellowship, one with another. But you see how those, those elements of the God had worked together perfectly, each in their own role, each bestowing wonderful gifts upon others. And, and what an incredible example that would be for them as the Corinthian church, and, and, and to us, as we are striving every day to work together in harmony, to work together in unity, to cast aside pride, to cast aside anything that would split us off into factions. That's a wonderful example for us. Any, any closing thoughts or comments? We're, we're running right up against our time, but uh, the doors aren't open yet. So any, any thoughts or comments? Yeah, Mitch. Just on that idea of the holy kiss, I think that's a, a physical expression of the ideas he's already said about being complete, being of good comfort, and being of one mind and living in peace. Yeah, it's a good thought. Yeah. Hard to be, uh, hard to be um, uh, I guess when you think about greeting somebody with a kiss, it's hard to have a lot of animosity <laughs> towards somebody if, that, if that's your greeting. Um, that, that can certainly break down some barriers. Any other thoughts? Well, in that case, I'll say my thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to study with you and uh, glad, to, glad to have this chance. Thank you so much for your thoughts. Thank you so much for your comments, especially those that, that have uh, offered them to me afterwards. Uh, it's, it's invaluable opportunity for me uh, to teach and to share this with you. So thank you very much.